Welcome again and thank you very much. Some of you have been so loyal, but I'm not an American, so therefore I cannot give you gifts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> you see, you know, in, in American culture, when people are loyal, you have to, you know, give them recompense and so forth. Uh, I am, I am more of, you know, I know you are doing, you are here out of, uh, oh, maybe I'm recorded. I should drop this, uh, this, this aspect. Okay. Uh, just briefly, there are some booths, I was told. Uh, several people, you know, are engaged in Muslim ministry since we were talking about Islam until now. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier Sam and Rodney, and I understand they have a booth okay, f for, for their ministry. They are located in Detroit, but they are developing also material. So you may want to visit their booth over there. So you ha also have Brian Gallant, who is coordinator at the North American Division. He also, you have a booth and also material. Uh, somebody else I'm missing? Just two. And I'm sure you will find other things there. So that could uh, eventually uh, help you. Okay. Uh, that can eventually help you in, you know, your growth and discovery of how to relate to Muslims and so forth and so on. Uh, as, as I told you what I have uh, shared here, most of it would be on, you know, like in the Adventist website and also the DVD that will be available at the general conference. We actually have traveled quite a bit recently, do some filming in different places around the world on world religions. Uh, as I, pr anything else you want me to add or? Um, I think best to go to the booths and learn yeah. the things that are on offer. Exactly. So, you have material opportunities where if you go to the booth, then you have time to converse more. The name of the booth? Brian, your booth, what is the name of your booth? Okay, so you will see it. Row 100. Row 100, okay. And yours is where? Um, 504. Five. Advent Interfaith Initiative, okay? So if you go, if you go there, you will find several things and uh, yeah, basically go and see. Now, uh, I would like to, as promised, um, I will come back to how to introduce Jesus, you know, definitely. But at this stage, I would like to just take a few minutes before presenting to you aspects of Hinduism and tomorrow, uh, I will divide one aspect of Adventism. Who are we? What is it that we share with our friends, Muslims, and so forth? And then uh, I will talk about um, the last presentation. Yeah, how to introduce Jesus, you know, basically. But I'll talk about secular and past modernism. Why is it that people today are difficult to reach? We were in uh, Seattle, uh, not, not in Seattle, Vancouver, Canada, and then Seattle not long ago. It seems that the more people are the more people are affluent, the more they tend to resist the gospel, uh, and there is a reason for that. So I need to share some specific things, and also, let's humbly say it: Adventist uh, uh, Adventism is not really reaching uh, contemporary culture people. Okay, uh, we are reaching more Muslims than actually contemporary culture. So I think it is important we understand what is going on here. Uh, so tomorrow I'll be spending some time with that. Uh, contemporary culture is really complex. It's a mixture of so many things, so many trends, that it is important for us to be specific about it. But then briefly, any question of what I have presented so far? Yes. In the news, we hear mostly. Uh, yes, please. Mm -hmm. yeah. What would be the major difference between them and the Sufi? Okay. 
You see, the Sunni is the official branch of uh, Islam, the majority, let's say. Shia, uh, the, you know, is, um, are the Muslims that believe that the legitimate heir of the Prophet Muhammad was Ali. And they have developed a certain, I mean, they all believe in the Quran. They all, you know, I mean, take the Quran as foundation. However, it is about the legitimate succession, and they have some doctrinal differences, but minors. Uh, I mean, uh, especially in the, um, you know, the Shia believe that the authority, spiritual authority, was carried through Muhammad and then Ali and then the successors of, of Ali, I mean, Hussein, in, you know, in, uh, you have heard about um, uh, Karbala and so forth, so... Yes, you know, they, you know, the martyrdom of Hussein and so forth. Now, uh, however, the Shia developed also that the authority was tr transmitted to Muhammad's successor through Ali and the Imams. Therefore, they follow, I mean, Ayatollahs, for example. They think that these people have spiritual authority, whereas Sunni Islam is more on the ulema the community of uh, spiritual leaders that have that function, basically. However, what is interesting about Sufism is that Sufism is found both in Sunni and in Shia Islam, actually across the board. And Sufi are the most missionary in Islam. Uh, the, the, it's not by chance that Africa, for example, has been mainly Sufi, uh, you know, because these are and. Asia also, Indonesia, Malaysia, as you have, of course, North Africa, because they are brotherhoods, you know, and that penetrates all over the world and so forth and so on. So they, uh, this is the reason why it is difficult to really uh, give a f correct figure of how many Sufis there are, because they are across the board. And the vibrant, most dynamic aspect of Islam today, we can say, is Sufi Islam. Okay, any other question of clarification? Yes. By the way, feel free to ask questions, and uh, if I can answer, fine. If I cannot, I will do more, more homework, right? So that's, <laughs> yes. Uh, we as Christians uh, look at how our doctrines, such as the Methodists, uh, and beliefs are rooted in the Bible. Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, mainly, the Quran is the foundation. This is like the central authority in all Islam. This is the reason why, by the way, the Islam that I presented to you was the Quranic perspective of Islam, because you have different kinds of Islam. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, you know, Sufi, Sunni, Shia, Ahmadiyya. I mean. Um, different kind of Islam, uh, fundamentalist, radical Islam, and you name it. However, however, they all believe in the central authority of the Quran. But beside that, this is like what you find in Christianity. Christians, they say, oh, we believe in the Bible. But at the same time, you find that you have traditions. You see what I'm saying? That... Uh, <laughs> Uh, come along, uh, and this, I mean, along with the Bible, this is the reason why we Adventists, uh, we say, hey, we go, we are a, a restorationist movement. Why do we say that? We say that because we believe other Christians did not stay unique, uh, uniquely in the Bible, but that they have added other things from the traditions and so forth. Let me give you can I take five minutes and give you a summary? Well, no, I can do it tomorrow when I will talk to you about Adventism. You know, because then I will explain to you how do we get to where we are? Who are we? You know, there was a time of formation, deformation during the Middle Age, reformation, and then the, the, the time of restoration that we are living right now. There's a reason for that. So I'll give you the details and why, because we need to know where we come from and who we are, you see? So that is important. Uh, I, was, I just saw one of my former students, so that's why I say hi. <laughs> okay, so but, uh, tomorrow, give me, give me a chance to 
uh, to uh, develop that aspect, okay? Yes, but anyway, yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I was going to... This is why we need a moderator, you see? He's helping me. Yes? One of the things that I encounter regularly, uh, as you mentioned, I think as an extension of the unity in Islam, we talk about is uh, the concept of the Quran given once in time, mm -hmm. committed to memory, written down, and then preserved, and that it has never been changed. Mm. Um, I know from some of my own research that there have been manuscripts that have popped up mm -hmm. uh, in Yemen, and I don't know if it, of any others that yeah. have been documented. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a two-part question. My first part is, um, do you know of any other evidence of history of, of um, discrepancies in the Quran? Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, you also mentioned uh, the allegations, which again have come up repeatedly, that the New Testament has been corrected. Mm -hmm. How do you answer that question? Um, and I, I ask it as a Bible believing, you know, believing the Bible is inspired and it's authoritative. But at the same time, knowing that there are textual discrepancies, you know, yeah. where you open up the Greek New Testament and there's a list mm -hmm. of, of differences. So how do you answer that question mm -hmm. without denying history, but at mm -hmm. the same time affirming the Bible yeah. Well, this is, you know, I mean, something that has been very well documented. First of all, uh, the, the, um, the textual history of the Quran, everybody knows that the, the, standardized, the, the standardized version did not exist during the time of Muhammad. You have at least four major traditions in existence when Uthman decided to pull them together, and the caliphs decided unilaterally to impose one reading of the Quran and discarded, burnt actually, all the others. Okay? That is a historical fact. So Muslims have decided this is our vulgata, I mean our text major. But you have discrepancies, you have different readings, and the manuscript you know, that you mentioned, there are others uh, well documented. It goes beyond this setting for me to, you know, to like give you some specific examples, but definitely I could give you references and even books recently written to show that the Islamic position is a position of authority, not logical demonstration that the Quran is flawless. But now, from an evangelistic perspective, we don't go there trying to prove Muslims that their Quran is not uh, immaculate. That is useless. Remember, we share the truth and we let the Holy Spirit right, uh, touch hearts, but uh, it is not by uh, diminishing the authority of the, you know, uh, of the Quran. Now, if Muslims though come and ask us, uh, and I'm, I'm just illustrating one quick example, Oh, the New Testament has been corrupted. You ask, I mean, a simple question to ask there would be, when was it corrupted? Because if they say before Muhammad, that causes a problem. Because Muhammad refers his I mean, Muslim followers to the writings of the New Testament. Read the scriptures before so how could he say, read if they were corrupted? What is the meaning of, if they say after? I mean, the, the existence of thousands of manuscripts is just made it impossible for you know, anybody to presume that the New Testament was corrupted. But there's a deeper issue. Because what we call Gospels, uh, by the way, those who do not have seats or something, they are some available here if you would like to. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. His shoe is down there. There you go. I see everything from here. You see that? <laughs> okay. Uh, you see, you, you have seats here. If you are comfortable coming up front, no problem. Okay. Uh, you see, <laughs> If they say, if, uh, 
we can demonstrate, well, I was going to say, there's a deeper issue, the issue of, they think that the Gospels are corruption or inter human interpretation to the real Gospel. The real Gospel was, I mean, uh, is not what we have today. Why is it so? Again, go back to the concept of oneness of all religions. Muslims believe that basically Jesus' disciples were Muslims, meaning submitted to God. It doesn't mean that they were Muslim in a sense that, you know, they followed Muhammad or something like that. No, 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 no. I mean, they obeyed Muhammad. But they believe in the unity of all the messengers, the unity of all the messages. You see what I'm saying? So in that perspective, they can only accuse the New Testament to have been corrupted. Why? Because there are some things in the New Testament that contradict some of the, some of the um, content of the Quran. Yeah? How could we uh, insist that Jesus died on the cross? I mean, of course, you, you know, you have different interpretation of that within even Islamic tradition, and it is well documented. Uh, so many other things that the New Testament spent most of the time on the passion of Christ, and then most Muslims deny that. Now, of course, you, you find a lot of people showing that the Quran doesn't deny that and so forth and so on. You have different opinions, but that's not, you know, probably the place here to, to enter into those. I have another presentation where I go through those to show what are the possibilities and the options, opinions, and so forth. Why is it that the Bible is reliable, actually? Why is it a reliable document? One last question? Yes, sorry. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Notice, this is amazing. The concept of sola scriptura, scripture alone, this is something that I believe Adventists insist on. But most of the other traditions, if you think carefully, they have something parallel to the scripture. You mentioned Judaism. Uh, the actual Judaism that exists today, if you really think about it, you have, of course, the Torah, eh? the five books of Moses. They, but you also have, no, 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 even that, uh, I mean, of course, you have the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. But beyond that, you have what they call the written Torah, and you have also what they call the oral Torah. You see, uh, which was, I mean, compiled after in the Talmud, the Gemara, the Mishnah, and so forth. N now, you look at Islam, you have the Quran, yes, but you have also the Sunnah, the Hadith, the tradition that talks about the Prophet. You see, uh, this is one of the things that um, is difficult to grasp. Why is it, some people are, that Muslims seem to want to go back to the 7th century and, uh, you know, and just be stuck there? Well, fundamentally, uh, one key element in Islam is the imitation of the prophet. The highest good is to imitate the prophet Muhammad. How do you do that? Some say, hey, we have to reinterpret how he lived. Others, no, we want up to his way of putting his turban. When he washed his hand, you know, starting with the right thumb. All those things are important to Muslims. You see what I'm, because he is their ultimate model in everything. All right. Okay. Shall I close? I'm sorry. I'm turning. Is that okay? Fine. Okay. Any other urgent questions? Of, yes. Uh, Okay, uh, the fatwa is really 
uh, is like a, uh, a decree, and it could be part of the Sharia law. Is a decree that an imam would uh, pronounce, especially in the Shia tradition. The Sharia is the whole law uh, of, uh, of Islam pertaining in everything. Why? You see, in Christianity, there is a separation between the spiritual and the temporal. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Separation between church and state and you name it, okay, uh, in America, in some of the, okay. In Islam, there's no such division because Islam is spiritual, religious, temporal, political, uh, economic, military. It is a lifestyle. Everything. It is a holistic approach to everything. Now, if you want to be consistent, then uh, only, well, Muslims, we can understand, would like to live in a society that is totally integrated within the Islamic worldview. It's rare to find that. Only some countries have adopted those things, Saudi Arabia. But even within the Muslim, uh, uh, um, within the Muslim setting, you find some, some discrepancies there. For example, take polygamy, okay? You find that, okay, in the Quran it says you can have up to four wives. Most Muslims believe in that and live by that. However, there are some, uh, like uh, Tunisia, it is a state law to be, I mean, uh, polygamy is forbidden in Tunisia. And people say, how is it possible on the basis of the same Quran? Well, it is again a matter of interpretation. For example, if you really would follow the Quran, you will not be polygamous. How so? The Quran says you can have up to four wives. And, you know, people, and we have to be understanding, people think that it was an, uh, an economic necessity at first. Why? Because Many Muslims who were going to war, uh, fighting, and many were killed, and therefore the wives, remember, no social security. The wives either, they, I mean, how would they survive? How would they survive? Huh? Uh, so it was an, uh, an act of compassion, according to the Muslim perspective, to be, polyg I mean, to, for someone to. Uh, marry those people, like in the Old Testament. If, uh, you know, a brother dies and then the wife remains, so for, you know, uh, the, okay, so act of compassion, they would say. However, the Quran puts a limitation by saying, only if you can be fair to each one of them. However, another statement of the Quran will say, you can never be fair to each one of them. <laughs> So what is the conclusion? You see, so Tunisia can, in reading the same Quran, decide no polygamy. You see, now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Jesus even said that that was uh, allowed because of the hardness of human heart. Like divorce, by the way. Okay? Uh, and the same thing for war. David, a man of war, even we are told he was the man after God's own heart. However, God wanted to mark. I mean, by the way, <laughs> some people read the Bible in a strange way. Uh, when they see David is man, uh, I mean, um, a man according to God's own heart, they make that into a general statement that applies to everything. But God did not endorse David's adultery or David's killing of Uriah. Actually, God sent a prophet, Nathan, to rebuke David, right? So, also, uh, also, because he was a man of war, when he wanted to build the sanctuary, remember? God said, no, not you. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Okay? Anyway, so the, this helps to, 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 uh, to put it clearly in, the, in, a, in a perspective. Let me add one more thing. But Jesus is clear, though. No, like many things that were allowed because of the hardness of human heart, God wants people to change heart. 
not only to change the external circumstances. See, uh, this is why polygamy in the New Testament say, okay, if one, someone wants to be a leader, if a deacon, one wife. An elder, one wife. That was an incentive for a Christian to start thinking and making a difference between God's absolute will and God's permissive will. You following me? God's absolute will, and this is what we want to follow. God's permissive, uh, uh, permissive will are just circumstantial laws that were bound to disappear when God's perfect will is expressed. That's why Christianity banished uh, polygamy, etc., etc., etc. Okay. Now you can see these are really important topics, and uh, maybe someday we can expand a little more on this. But now let me just give you a synopsis. Uh, up to what time do we have? Now from here? 30 minutes? That's almost a sin, you know? Okay. <laughs> okay, so th uh, until 4. Uh, quarter two. Okay, all right. In that case, let me just move on to share something about Hinduism, a world of your neighbors. Your neighbors are Hindus, secular pastoral, and we will develop a, I mean, a little more tomorrow. Uh, you have to forgive me because I spent some time, uh, more than two semesters, teaching these things. We have all the time for people to digest, but we will do our best. Hinduism. Uh, <laughs> the word Hinduism is coined, actually, by British. Hindus, they, they, they don't call themselves Hindus. Or they don't call their religion Hinduism. They call their religion Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana, eternal. Dharma, uh, a very interesting word. It could be religion, yes. It could be appropriateness. It could be righteousness. We will come back to that. But you can see... They call their religion an eternal religion. Think about it. They all have their claims. Islam claimed to be the primordial, natural religion, right? Hinduism, the everlasting, eternal religion. Why is it so? Just briefly, some statistics. 1.1 billion Hindus, the third largest religion of the world. It is impossible for you not to have met a Hindu. So therefore, the urgency for you to be aware of how they think so that you can present the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. Are you with me? But usually, it is interesting, we don't mingle with Hindus. I was not too long ago in, um, in an uh, uh, island about six months ago, Trinidad, because they are exploring ways to reach this people group. Why? Because 40% of that island is Hindu. They have, they have about 1 million Hindu in that area. See? But Adventists usually don't really uh, uh, mingle. Hmm? So, anyway, just briefly, uh, in India, 880 million, Nepal, Indonesia, etc., etc., in America, they're actually more. This is a conservative figure than one million. More Hindu than Adventist. Okay. Uh, of course, you have different kinds of Hindu, and uh, half an hour is no way for me to enter into the detail. But you have folk Hindu, like folk Islam, right? But you have Vedic Hindu, practiced by the Brahmin. I'll tell you more about them shortly. Vedantic Hindu, philosophical approach of the Upanishad, these are writing. You have yogic Hinduism. Uh, <laughs> uh, yoga, by the way, is not just by chance. And you find, I mean, it's, it's not innocent or neutral. You find uh, in, the, in the West, uh, in America, several people, you know, yoga, um, you know, thinking, oh, I'm doing this for physical fitness or these kind of things. But in Hinduism, yoga has a specific purpose to achieve something that we will see briefly. Okay, you have Dharmic Hinduism, of course, about daily morality, based on the notion of karma, I will come back to that. And then the, the Vakti, or devotionalism, especially in Vaishnavism. Now, okay, these are 
the Hindus that are devoted to, to one God, for example, uh, seeking to gain merits and so forth. But remember what I was telling you earlier. Each religion, uh, uh, and for those who have joined us, it will be a good thing to remember. Each religion identifies a basic problem, right? A core issue. You have to know what, what, what is this in order to be relevant to the people. A set of problems, challenges all human beings face, need to overcome or be delivered from. Each one, of course, offers solution, adopts core values around which adherents are urged to orient their aspirations accordingly, and of course, each proposes, I'm going too fast, is that okay? Okay. Each proposes some benefits, prohibits some taboos, and set boundaries not to cross without some purification, rites of passage, and rituals. Okay? Remember the seven steps that I was mentioning? The name, the problem, solution, values, anti-values, right and rituals, and finally connectors. Okay? If you use this template, it can help you organize your thoughts, you know, like to, to know what a given world religion is all about. Therefore, let me ask, let me just share with you. Hinduism sees human problems in terms of the following. The first problem, you know what is it? Bad karma. The law of retribution. You do wrong, you pay. This is terrible, by the way. I'm so glad we have grace. <laughs> but Hindus toil. This is why, actually, you find even the division of classes is based on this. If you are born in a family of the untouchables, Sudra, the lower in the hierarchy, in the social hierarchical system of Hinduism, you have to accept your fate. Why? Because you are paying something that you have done in your previous life. So accept your dharma, accept your fate, your fate. See that? So the, the law of karma is a problem. And you can understand then Hinduism will be about how to undo and how to escape this terrible law of karma. Remember what I told you earlier? One Point one billion people believe this. And interestingly, if you, I will not have time to talk to you about Buddhism, a very interesting, actually the most favored religion in the West now. Fascinating world. When you start entering the logic, you say, oh yeah, it makes sense. But this is not true about God. It makes sense. But this is not true about human beings, etc., etc., etc. Okay, now think about this. The second bad news, you know why I was telling you it's a sin to give me just, you know, I mean, to just have 30 minutes, but, but that's fine. Samsara, that's the cycle of death and rebirth. <laughs> this is why yesterday, for the 50 seconds I had to tell you about the seminar, I said, well, if you come, you tell a Buddhist and a Hindu, you must be born again. It's a bad news for them. <laughs> because, because they don't want to be born again precisely. You know? They want to escape that cycle of birth, rebirth. Therefore, the necessity for you to understand their worldview and package the gospel accordingly in a way that makes sense to them. Okay, what next? Problem of human being ignorance. And by the way, I'll come back to this shortly. Ignorance of what? Remember, for Muslims, it is ignorance of, I mean, forgetfulness of God, forgetfulness of the fitra, the primordial nature. For Hinduism, this is why it is so attractive to new age philosophies. It's ignorance of who you really are. Because according to Hindus, you are gods. And I will talk to you about this. It's, uh, you your, your, your soul, meaning Atman, is part of Brahman, deity. 
So, but the problem is you are separated from deity. And therefore, your Atman, your soul, has to be reunited. Interestingly, something that resonates with Sufism here. Okay? You see, error is spread in a way. I mean, if, if I say uh, error in this sense, think about this. We are not gods, but they believe we are, or we were. So, the goal of life is to recover that divinity. Also, Hindus think that, uh, see, there's another problem, lack of righteousness. Uh, a kind of dissonance with Dharma. Based the law of the universe, Dharma, and Buddhism has that too. But our lives is disconnected with that. Sorry. Disconnected, disconnected with that. And because of that, there is a lack of fulfillment and inappropriateness. <laughs> uh, guess what? How do you recover that Atman, the soul that was part of divine, the divine? Well, some of the means is to give up the world. Notice. Give up the world. Because, you know, Hindu wise people have been reflecting for, I mean, millennia. Why is it that people are not satisfied? One answer is that people are looking after toys. And the toys are what? Well, they are wealth, you know, power, knowledge. So basically, uh, people end, and by the way, pleasure. But they, they think all these are toys. So imagine you Adventists, you come to share the gospel with the Hindu. And the wrong gospel, the gospel of, of, of prosperity, let's say. You come to a Hindu, hey, become an Adventist. You will be, a pro I mean, you'll be prosperous. You'll be healthy and prosperous. He will look at you and say, you are still sleeping. Because he gave up that. That is not what attracts a Hindu. Now, interestingly, let me just share some things. So what are the solutions? Before I tell you about the solution, I need to tell you a story. Uh, this story, though, is found in Jainism. Now, Jainism is another religion, very close to Hinduism, except that they go even farther. I mean, they're all vegetarian. They would not kill a, a mosquito. So, <laughs> just to give you an idea. Uh, so, in, in Jainism, uh, and I think the best way to enter the, and understand the world of world religion is through the, their texts and their stories. Now, uh, this is one of the ways that I use to read their stories. You know, why this story? I mean, in Islam, the same thing. It is not by chance you have three uh, stories related to Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad. Think about it. He went to a mountain, Hira, came back and gave Islam. He went to a mirage, Laylatul Mirage, the uh, ascension, mystical ascension to Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, and also he migrated to Medina. All those stories, they tell us something about what Islam is trying to communicate. So the same thing happened in the Hindu text. So I take time, some time, to just come through. And so now look at this following story. It, it looks terrible, but it tells you, uh, it informs the background worldview of Hinduism, Jainism, and so forth. Look at, look at the following story. A traveler was journeying through a dense forest when he encountered a mad elephant which charged him with a raised trunk. As he turned to flee, a terrible demoness with a naked sword appeared before him. This person running, okay? Uh, and barred his path. There was a great tree near the track, and he ran up to it, hoping to find safety in its branches. But he could find no foothold in its smooth trunk. 
His only refuge was an old well covered with grass and weeds at the foot of the tree and into it he leaped. Let me continue the story. <laughs> As he fell, <laughs> you, you know, this is something that they use in... Uh, if you tell a child half the story, you are a criminal. <laughs> because they will say, continue, continue, continue. Why? Because we want to know the denouement, you know, like the, 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 the resolution. Huh? Okay. And adults like kids exactly the same, so that's why I was kidding. <laughs> so as he fell, okay, he fell now, he leaped into it, fell. He managed to catch hold of a clump of reeds which grew from the wall. And there he hung, midway between the mouth of the well and its bottom. Looking down, he saw that the bottom did not contain water, but was surrounded by what? Snakes, which hissed at him as he hung above them. In their midst, the snakes, was a python. Now, this is a story that Hindus tell. Listen to where they are leading you. Its mouth, agap, you know, watching to catch him when he fell. Okay? Right, raising his head again, he saw two mice. One white, the other black. Busily eating away at the roots. Now, all of you are wondering... So what's next? <laughs> Meanwhile, the wild elephant ran up to the well and enraged at losing its victim, began charging at the root of the tree. Now, the mice, the elephant now, and he is hanging, and the snakes are down waiting, okay? Anyway, then he dislodged a what? A honeycomb which hung from a branch above the well, and it fell upon the man hanging there so precariously. Angry bees swarmed around his head and tormented him with their stings. The story is not over. <laughs> but, but, something happened. One drop of honey fell on his brow, rolled down into his, uh, to his face, and reaches his lips. I mean, at least in the midst of this disaster, something good, huh? Immediately, he forgot his peril and thought of nothing more than obtaining another drop of honey. What is the story all about? Human beings are in a tragic situation. Bad karma, caught in samsara, unrighteousness, terrible, in need of being delivered. But guess what? Human beings, like Muslims would say, they forget because they are enjoying little, a little bit of honey. In other words, the point to this story, it's a story, of course, a made-up story by Hindu wise people then, is that most people are like the traveler. We focus our attention on the things of this world, the honey, forgetting the danger surrounding. As a traveler focuses simply on the sweet taste of the honey, but the honey gives no solution to his deep, real problem. That's why they will say, nothing will satisfy you in this world. Okay? That's the background. Now imagine, if you preach to a Hindu who is aware of his tradition, and you tell, oh, come, I'll give you things of this world, or you'll be rich, you'll be famous, and he will look at you and say, you are still asleep, distracted. So you ought to come with the pure gospel, the everlasting gospel, as I was telling you this morning, the antidote of all the world's sins and sorrows. You see, there is an antidote, if I may use this comparison, there is an antidote to the elephant, there is an antidote to the bees. There is an antidote to the snakes. 
there is an antidote to the danger, the mice eating up the rope, if you please. That's the gospel that you have. So by no, now you understand why Hindus and these people live in fear. And Ellen White gave us, uh, I will share that with you tomorrow. Most world religion, people toil because they want a better life. They want to escape these cycles and so forth and so on. So most of us pay no attention, according to Hindu, to our deep religious problem. Why do you think they are so religious? Why do some travel thousands of miles to go to the Ganges River to take a bath because they think it will purify them, etc., etc.? Now, the thing of this world provides no solution to that problem, whether we live grandly or barely survive. That's why, actually, <laughs> this has even informed uh, Hindu traditions that once they become old, they give up even their family and everything and go to live ascetic lives, mystical life, to escape again. You see, there's always a problem. By the way, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It, I mean, I don't have time to talk to you about animistic religions, but it is also about the fear, you know, escaping problems, avoiding misfortune. Avoiding misfortune, that's why, so they will try to please the spirits. Because if the spirits are favorable to them, oh, they will then avoid misfortune. That's why people go to sacrifice, to shrines and this kind of thing. Anyway, let me just mention something quickly here. We have ten more minutes. Hmm. Okay, prevalence of the number four. You have four Vedas. These are the Hindu texts. For you guys, you know, Hindu divide time into four cycles, okay? Uh, four goals of life, four social castes. Okay, uh, you have the text. I'm not going to spend time on this one because you might not remember this. This will be available on our website, Adventist Mission, in a few months, so no problem, okay? Let me just, go, uh, the Veda, okay. Oh, my Okay, let me just move on, because if I, the, it, the, there's no way to go through all this. There are four yugas, four cycles. Now, today, according to, in, to Hindus, we are living in the fourth, the last period on world history that is called Kali Yuga. Now, I'm talking to Adventists, think about it, most of you. The age of darkness, it is called the age of obli uh, oblivion, why? Because the Kali Yuga is marked by materialism, hypocrisy, technology, and terrible wars, they say. These are written in Hindus' writings. Few humans now remember their divinity. Now notice what I was telling you, because human beings are gods. Most now believe in the divine through faith, etc., religions. Huh? Okay. Uh, the average lifespan at Kali Yuga starts is, I mean, at the beginning, was 100 years. Hindu believe humankind is now roughly between the first and the second quarters of the Kali Yuga. In the last few millennia of Kali Yuga, few human beings will live to see adulthood, having almost completely lost their connection to the Godhead. You know why I study these kind of things? It's because we have a, what, what we call uh, uh, the understanding of the last days, right? End time scenarios, prophecy. Imagine, these are the things we can share with Hindus. Again, prophecy, and tomorrow I will, I will tell you more about it. The objective for, you, for Hindu, righteousness, uh, artha, kama, moksha, especially this one, liberation from san, samsara, the cycle of life and death. Look at the caste system. I talked to you about it. Let me not spend too much time. The underlying issue in Hinduism, the root cause, the root problem, is that the true self. Notice, uh, my friend Dr. Pippin was telling you uh, about the new spiritualities, you know, that's part of his, his seminar, what, what he calls uh, a Trojan horse. Uh, so he was drawing your attention, our attention, on the fact that even Christians now are using terminology 
you see about oh your true self, your core self, inner self, I mean, etc., etc., etc. Now, the Bible talks about inner man, but it means something different than what is here in Hinduism. Okay? Now, interestingly, the whole edifice of Hinduism is predicated upon the belief that the self was one with Brahman. So, the objective of Hinduism is the recovery of the true self. The fundamental quest is to transcend the toys of life in order to discover one's real Atman or soul, which is part of Brahman. Okay? <laughs> All right. So basically then, Hinduism, what is it? A map of, of the many ways. It's very syncretistic. By uh, with which one may so live that the Atman, the soul, attain its goal. Hmm? A map of Dharma, righteousness. Okay? That, that's why I was telling you earlier that the name of this religion is everlasting Dharma. Okay? Now, the ultimate goal of life, what is it? Moksha. Again, liberation. Think about what I told you earlier. If the sun makes you free, you are free indeed. All world religions, they are seeking liberation one way or the other. And you know that it is in Jesus. But that tomorrow I will spend time talking to you about the one that I, that I came to love and to follow. Jesus Christ. Moksha. Nirvana, Samadhi, fundamentally liberation from samsara. Okay? Uh, and this is understood variously depending on the Hindu school of thought. Think about it. Realization of one's union with God, eternal relationship, unity of all existence, perfect and selfish and knowledge of the self, attainment of mental peace, Detachment from worldly desire, they are all objectives in Hinduism depending on which school of thought. <laughs> Hinduism is the most complex of all world religions. You know why? If you look at the theology, for example, look, monotheistic, polytheistic, pantheistic, God is personal, impersonal, transpersonal. <laughs> you see, depending, I mean, it's the most, it's as, it is as if everything goes. Transpersonal, God is in everybody. Impersonal is life force. You know, and personal, they believe in one deity. And also, you even find the Trinity, or called more uh, accurately in Hinduism, Trimurti, that the, the, the three divine, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Interestingly, I don't have time to go through the detail, but Hindu believe that Vishnu incarnated into ten avatars. Have you heard people talking about avatar? Or even diva? All those things are Hindu terminology. Okay? It's like when we call people star, you know? <laughs> what do we mean? This is part of pagan mythology, actually. Interestingly, uh, let me just go here to say, I mentioned this. Ten avatars for Vishnu. Guess what? I'm not going to go through all the ten here. It's no time, no. Uh, but Krishna was the eighth avatar. Some Hindu, not Buddhist, they believe that Buddha was the nine, the enlightened one. Hindu are waiting for the tenth avatar. Interestingly, they call him the avatar of the apocalypse. Some call it. This manifestation of Vishnu, a final, is yet to occur. Guess what? It is believed in Hinduism that when he will appear at the end of the last age of existence, called the Kali Yuga, he will be riding on a pale horse. You see what I'm saying? There is always, it doesn't matter which world religion, but there is always a path to build a bridge to share the everlasting gospel. You understand why I insist? It is mandatory, essential for us to understand how people think. Because here, it is framed for us to share that Jesus is coming. And when he will come, he will do something far beyond what they believe Vishnu will be doing. 
See, anyway, uh, I could continue. Appeal to Hinduism? Yeah, some people are becoming Hindu. Do you realize? It's a very, uh, it is a religion of toleration. Tolerant. Spurn materialism. You know, the world is caught into materialism. Hinduism will say there is another alternative here. Why do you think there was a time young people from the West would travel to Kathmandu? Kathmandu, rather. Benares, and you name it. Wanting to find another path than the promises of money, sex, materialism, and you name it. Of course, some were in drugs and whatever, but others were seeking a spiritual path. Interestingly, there are ethical codes about dharma and so forth. In two minutes, I have to stop. Hindu focus on compassion and forgiveness at the heart of Hindu teaching. So, uh, and think about the non-violence, acts of charity, the dharmic, non-violence, ahimsa, this is where Gandhi is known through these kind of things. Your neighbors too. Let me, well, and even though I will talk about that more tomorrow, I will talk more about the bridges, okay? Uh, tomorrow when I will talk about, about Muslims, Hindus, secular pastors, and so forth. But if I may just leave you with an idea and be perfect in, in terms of timing today, mm -hmm. Communicate with your neighbors. Ask them about their religions. Be, follow Christ's method. There's nothing better that was given to this world as Christ's method. Remember that? And Ellen White mentioned this so perfectly clearly. He what? Mingled with people. As one who desires what? Their good. Second, what happened? Third, rather. Huh? He, yes, he served them. Okay, he attended to their needs. He won their confidence. And it is at that stage, then he bid them to follow him. This is why when you ask earlier about the gift, a book, and so forth, once the confidence is there, then test witnessing becomes a pleasure because they will ask you questions and of course remember the holy spirit preceded you before you talk to anybody remember this is god's mission and even if you don't know about all this that i have shared god can give you the right words the right attitude the right mindset now, I'm not talking about Buddhism now, right intent, right view, right, you know. But God can give you what you need to be a true witness of the resurrected Christ who conquered death. I would like to thank you for coming to this seminar. Tomorrow, we're going to conclude with two. Uh, and I, I will talk about Adventist identity and I will talk about postmodernism a tiny bit. I think I owe you to share something with, I mean, about your neighbors who are neither Muslim nor Hindus or who are Muslims and postmodern. And some people have a strange mix, you know. <laughs> uh, so we will talk about that tomorrow. And then I will reinforce our Adventist identity because studying other world religion is good, but you ought to know what you believe, you ought to know who you believe, Jesus Christ, living in an intimate relationship with God. So thank you for attending this seminar. Maybe I would like to have a word of prayer before we leave. Okay? Shall we just bow our heads? Our gracious Lord, we are grateful to belong to you. We are grateful that you have loved us so deeply and that you love us in the present tense so deeply that it is unfathomable. But we believe it because you have demonstrated it. Forgive us each time we have forgotten, each time we have doubted that you loved us unconditionally. 
Forgive us, Lord, also for not loving other people unconditionally and for not reaching out to them. Your mission is also ours in a sense that you want to gather the family that you have created, people you have created in your image from all backgrounds. Help us to develop deep respect for each one of them. Even if we disagree with what we believe, may we respect the people. And Lord, give us to leave wholeheartedly the good news, being liberated people, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in kindness, in joy, in love, in temperance. Lord, help us to really receive you fully so that we can share you with other people. I pray for each person here that you have brought in this seminar in, 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 through your providence. I pray that whatever challenge they have in sharing the gospel, that you will help them overcome and you will give them the joy to see people come to surrender to King Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. May your name be glorified for now and forever. And may you soon come so that we can fellowship with you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.